is EM Cases, EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. I've always thought that imaging in renal colic is pretty easy. You need imaging if you're searching for an alternative diagnosis. You need imaging if the patient is febrile, septic, and needs to go to the OR urgently. And you need imaging if the patient's pain can't be controlled and therefore a surgical intervention might be required. Otherwise, generally, it's not needed. However, this is one of those topics that just creates a lot of controversy and there's a lot of practice variation. So I wanted to cover an excellent paper from last year. Moore and colleagues published a paper in the Annals of Emergency Medicine that combined two different methodologies. First, they did a systematic review. Then, they created 29 clinical vignettes and used a modified Delphi process to determine what kind of imaging, if any, their panel of experts would recommend. And one of the big strengths of this study is that they used a multidisciplinary panel, so there were radiologists, emergency doctors, and urologists judging these cases. So from the systematic review, I don't think there's anything too surprising We can't say how accurate the CT scan is because it's just considered the gold standard, so we don't get a sensitivity or specificity, but clearly it's not a perfect test. The most important number is that a clinically important alternative diagnosis is found on CT in less than 5% of patients, and presumably we can make that a little bit better by selectively scanning high-risk patients. Furthermore, despite significantly increasing CT use over the last couple decades, there has not been a change in interventions at all. So presumably, we're ordering a lot of CTs that do not change management. The ultrasound numbers are a little messy. For POCUS, they come up with a sensitivity of 70% and a specificity of 75%, but that's for all stones, and we don't really care as much about small stones. They do say that ultrasound is unlikely to miss any stones that will require surgical intervention. Let's get to what I think is the interesting part. For the 29 cases, they had perfect agreement on about half of them, and then about 8 of the 9 experts agreed on 28%, so that means they had really good agreement about 80% of these cases. They thought that no imaging at all was required for 45% of the cases required. Ultrasound was the first choice in 31%, and CT was only the first choice in 24% of these cases. Now, that's 24% of these artificial cases, not 24% of the patients you see, but I think that's a really important finding. We're using CT a ton for this diagnosis, and the experts are telling us that it isn't necessary. Maybe even more important is the recommendation to do no imaging. Ever since that big RCT in 2014 that showed no difference between POCUS, formal ultrasound, and CT in the emergency department, a lot of us have been using ultrasound first, and that's great. But to be honest, aside from the most senior doctors in your shop who trained in the era before CT, how many people are treating renal colic with no imaging at all? These experts tell us that we should, at least for some patients. Now, there's no way I can go through all 29 vignettes. I think you might actually want to read this paper yourself, but I'll just give you a sense. So a 35-year-old man with a history of stones, a classic presentation, and whose pain improves with analgesia, they suggest no imaging at all. Now, if you take that same 35-year-old man and say he has no previous history of stones, they suggest you start with an ultrasound. 
Now, this one's interesting because later they do two different cases. One where the patient has an ultrasound that is positive, and a second where the ultrasound is negative. And in both cases, there was perfect agreement. No further imaging is needed. Therefore, it's not really clear why you need that first ultrasound because the results do not change your management according to these experts. Now, let's take a look at that same 35-year-old with no history of stones, a classic presentation, but this time, his pain does not significantly improve with analgesia. Here, they recommend a low-dose CT. Now, if you change it to a 55-year-old guy who has a history of stones, a classic presentation, and whose pain improves with ultrasound, here, they say ultrasound. Again, it isn't clear exactly what you're going to do with those results. But if you make it a 55-year-old with no history of stones, this is that classic first presentation of renal colic. Here they suggest low-dose CT. And then if you go up to a 75-year-old, even if there's a history of stones and a classic presentation and the pain is better, in a 75-year-old, they're recommending low-dose CT. If you're pregnant, you get ultrasound. If you have abdominal tenderness, they suggest imaging, and mostly they're actually saying CT, but I think it depends on what your differential is. Ultrasound is a great place to start if it might be appendicitis, for example. As I said, I think it's worth reading through these cases yourself, and specifically thinking about cases where their recommendations are different from your current practice. Now, this isn't a perfect study. The experts don't even agree perfectly, and I still think they recommend way too much CT, but Overall, this is an excellent paper that should change practice for a lot of people. Again, the summary is actually pretty easy. The older a patient is, and the less sure you are about the diagnosis of renal colic, the more value there will be from CT scan. Young patients with a clear diagnosis, no imaging is needed at all. And for intermediate patients, ultrasound is a great place to start. I'll reiterate my initial thought. Imaging for renal colic is pretty easy. It's required if you're searching for an alternative diagnosis. It's required if the patient is septic and needs the OR urgently. And it's required if the pain can't be controlled and you might need a surgical intervention. Otherwise, it's generally not necessary. That was, of course, Justin Morgenstern. One point I'd like to make is that not all CT protocols are created equal. For the older patient who could have an ischemic gut or bowel obstruction or renal colic, then you'll probably do a full CT abdo pelvis with or without contrast, which takes a ton of time and has a ton of radiation. But some hospitals are doing low-dose renal CT protocols that might actually be faster to get than a radiology department ultrasound, and the radiation dose is minuscule. So speak to your radiologists. If they offer a low-dose renal colic CT, there are some situations where you might ask for one over an ultrasound It's more accurate than ultrasound, often faster, and the radiation dose is negligible. All that being said, the option of no imaging is one that we should probably consider more often than we currently do. All right, next up, we have a very special guest to EM Quick Hits, Dr. Hanny Stocklosa, EM doc at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, executive director of Heal Trafficking and director of the Global Women's Health Fellowship at Mary Horrigan Connors Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology. She's a world expert on human trafficking and is going to give us some tools to help us recognize and manage this widespread and underrecognized problem in EM. We know now that the emergency department is the front lines for caring for trafficked persons and that the majority of trafficked persons 
access healthcare at some point while they're being trafficked. So this is definitely an issue that you are going to see in your emergency department and likely have been seeing, but have not been identifying as such. I think the key is to start with the definition because um, it's actually much broader than a lot of people realize. So going to the international definition for trafficking, of course, it's a crime. So it's defined on the behalf of what the trafficker is doing to our our patient or a potential victim. But there are three main components of what trafficking is. So the trafficker has to do something, there's an action, and then a means and the purpose. And so just to go through those things, uh, the trafficker may be involved at any stage of that person's exploitation. They may uh, be recruiting them, they may be harboring them, they may be transporting them. Uh, They have to exploit them in some way and trap that victim in some way. So traffickers will use force, fraud, or coercion. We see that that can be um, a variety of things from what kind of the more obvious side of things, whether that's physical or sexual assault, um, or the more kind of psychologically coercive and equally powerful coercion using economic abuse, a debt bondage situation, and just similar to what we see with intimate partner violence, making them feel like a mental prisoner by really threatening them, threatening their families, um, alternating acts of violence with kindness. So those are the force, fraud, or coercion um, examples. And then for labor or sex trafficking. So the the two main buckets of trafficking that we see internationally, um, labor trafficking is more common. And then traffickers are profiting off of those individuals. So at the core, trafficking is a crime against an individual where that person becomes a commodity and, and the trafficker is using them for their, their own profit and gain. And what we see in the healthcare setting is that because of the ways that people are trapped in their situations, they can really present with a variety of medical complaints, whether that's a suicidal ideation, whether that's substance use that, that led to their trafficking and is keeping them trapped in that situation, um, whether it's tuberculosis from the, the living conditions where they're you know living with a number of, of individuals in, in close quarters. And as clinicians, you know, we are, and emergency clinicians in particular, we are perfectly positioned and trained to identify trafficking because we've been trained to look for child abuse, we've been trained to look for domestic abuse, and a lot of those same sort of patterns that we've been trained in really can help us in identifying trafficking victims. So, you know, the history really not matching what we're seeing on, on physical exam or with our diagnostic studies, somebody that seems to be a bit more fearful than we would imagine for what they're presenting with, delayed presentation. So traffickers sometimes won't let somebody access healthcare until they're really on death's door because again, they're you know, their whole purpose is to create profit for that that trafficker. So something as simple as, you know, a skin infection may present in a really delayed fashion. Another thing that I want to add in here is that we know that that emergency physicians and clinicians, we all have biases. Um, We are human. And, uh, you know, studies show that clinicians' unconscious biases are very similar to what we see in the general population. And that really comes to bear when it comes to, to trafficking. So, you know, even for for those of you that are listening to in today, um, knowing this is a tra- uh, trafficking podcast, you may have come in to this podcast imagining what a victim of trafficking looked like, and um, we know that those those biases, those stereotypes that we use, are really helpful on one hand in our our clinical work, um, but they can also be harmful in um, particularly with trafficking because my guess is that the trafficking victims that you will encounter may not 
meet those those stereotypes, that image that you have in your mind. So to really check ourselves and our biases when we think about first what a trafficking victim looks like and also how they behave and realize that that may be much broader than we we originally thought. So I'm going to transition then to just talking briefly about how to assess somebody that you think is potentially trafficked. First of all, I you know I do not advocate for 100% universal screening for for trafficking. Um, I think that that's too burdensome to our our systems. And and what we see with kind of universal screening for things a lot of times is that that we as clinicians go into autopilot mode and the human element and human compassion and empathy is so important when it comes to assessing for trafficking that we really need to not be in kind of that automatic mode. So um, when I think about the who in terms of who I was assessed for trafficking, I think about vulnerable populations. So I think about my patients that are speaking English as a, a second language, those that are working in sectors that I would be worried about trafficking for. So traffickers exploit in underregulated, underpaid industries like agriculture, construction work, manufacturing, um, health and beauty services, domestic work, hospitality services. Migrants um, are vulnerable to trafficking substance um, users. So we're seeing huge links with the opioid epidemic and, and trafficking. And so that's a population that I definitely have a higher suspicion for, for trafficking in. And uh, those that are involved in the child welfare system, homeless, runaway or throwaway youth, LGBTQ youth. And then when it comes to assessing for trafficking, I like to use this tool called the PAIR tool. And PAIR stands for Privacy, Educate, Ask, Respect, and Respond. And you can hear in that there's still that stage where you're going to ask a question, but it's customized. Um, It's broader than trafficking. It's for assessing all forms of abuse that our patients may experience. And it's customized to that individual and is empowerment focused. So the goal is not to rescue um, or to force a disclosure, but to really create a conversation and to empower that person with information so that if and when they're ready to, to disclose or to, to get out of the situation, they know what resources they have. So again, the goal is not disclosure. The goal is not rescue. It's to open that door and empower them with education um, and resources. And so I, I usually, for those patients that leave the emergency department, which is most of them, I make sure that they know about the National Human Trafficking Hotline number that we have in the United States. And there are many similar hotlines around the globe so that they have that kind of lifeline. Many of them know that their trafficker is going through their belongings. And so it's not safe for them to have it, you know, written down even in in their shoe. Um, Some of them might like label it in their phone under some other name. We're advocating that all health systems have a plan in place. So it's great to have these national hotlines to be able to refer individuals to, but really in your communities, starting those conversations and in your hospitals and hospital systems to to make sure that you know what resources exist in the community and where you'll be referring to. We have a, a great resource on the HEAL website called the HEAL Protocol Toolkit, which was a collaboration with Hope for Justice. And it's being used in 26 countries around the globe to, to help build protocols in hospitals and clinics and um, community health centers so that when that disclosure does happen, that there's not this panic and what do we do next? Along with respecting and responding and thinking about the categories of resources we can offer, I just want to flag one really important piece, which is law enforcement involvement. So I've heard story after story of clinicians that when they 
first think that there's trafficking going on, that their natural instinct is to call 911 or call law enforcement immediately. And I just really want to underline the point that law enforcement involvement has its time and place, but it's really critical that that decision is made with the potential survivor, with the potential traffic person, and that it's the right law enforcement at the right time. And just to give some examples of how this can go wrong, um, I mentioned earlier that you know trafficking victims may not disclose because of fear of deportation. There's actually a study out of New York City that showed that the number one reason why traffic persons did not tell their doctor. So we're talking about, you know, um, a trusted health professional was that they were afraid of being deported. And so whether or not that is a uh, real or perceived threat, depending on where you're clinically practicing, just to know that that fear is very loud and clear for many of our uh, foreign national patients, even those with documentation. And so you can see how mentioning law enforcement as a resource to that individual may just kind of close the door and they may not share anything else. And you really want to make sure that you're able to connect them with the other housing and legal resources that they may be interested in. So um, that's one way that things can go sideways. And many trafficking victims are forced to commit crimes as part of their exploitation. And so they may fear being arrested. And and if you call the wrong law enforcement, that law enforcement may feel that, that it's their due diligence to actually arrest that person rather than to treat them as a victim. And so, you know, the last thing we want to do is to to close that door with a, a potential traffic person. And the last thing we want for them to have happen is for them to be deported or arrested. Just being careful even about the mention of, of law enforcement resources, and then certainly in terms of engaging law enforcement to build those relationships ahead of time. So I just covered a lot of of information here. So again, we know that the majority of trafficked persons access healthcare at some point while they're being trafficked. And the number one location is the emergency department. And for someone to be considered trafficked, there has to be an action that the trafficker is doing to them. And they may be forced, frauded, coerced into that situation for labor or for commercial sex work. And they really may present in a variety of fashions, but to think about those health-related pieces that might be related to the the work that they're doing, the living conditions they're in, those delayed presentations, and then those contextual clues where somebody may be extra fearful, their story may may not be matching their history, they may be coming in with somebody, even if that person is, um, you know, the same uh, gender and seems to be amicable to just to think about the fact that could even be another potentially trafficked person. And then whenever you're thinking about assessment for traffic persons to really think about setting up those right conditions that allow for disclosure and safety, emotional safety, but that the goal is not disclosure or rescue. And so that's the pair tool, privacy, educate, ask, respect, and respond. And then ultimately to make sure that you have a plan in place, that you have those policies and procedures in place. And again, the heel trafficking protocol toolkit is an excellent resource in, in setting that up. And I encourage all of you to join the heel trafficking network. It's free to sign up for our listserv. We're, we are always sharing the latest evidence related to health and trafficking intersections. And our website has a compendium of resources, including the medical literature, example protocols from around the globe, um, webinars for health professionals to really dive in deep on specific topics like trauma-informed care. Thank you again for the opportunity to, to share this information with you all today. And I look forward to having you join HEAL and look forward to future conversations. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Stocklosa, for raising our awareness of an under-recognized problem where we really can make a big difference in the front lines. Next up, we've got Dr. Rohit Mohindra, an EM doc and researcher at Northrop General, who's going to give us the lowdown on the evolving options for treating atrial fibrillation in the ED during the COVID era. A 60-year-old female presents to the emergency department with a six-hour history of palpitations. She doesn't have any past medical history, and she denies taking any medications. Her view of systems is pretty unremarkable. Reports of palpitations started about six hours ago suddenly. She checked her heart rate at home with her husband's blood pressure machine, and her heart rate was about 130, so she called her family doctor, who advised her to come to the emergency room. At triage, she had a blood pressure of 120 over 70, a heart rate of 140, which was irregular, a respirator of 20, she was setting 100% on room air, and she was afebrile with a normal point-of-care glucose. On exam, she looks a little bit uncomfortable, but her examination is otherwise pretty normal. You get a 12-lead EKG, which shows irregularly spaced QRS complexes without regular P waves. And so you make the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Now, certainly, she could be a great candidate for electrical cardioversion. She's low risk for stroke by the Canadian Cardiovascular Society risk score. She's still symptomatic. And doing electrical cardioversion is one of those fun procedures that emergency doctors love to do. But then you hesitate. You wonder, is procedural sedation a bit more riskier during the COVID-19 pandemic? Certainly, during sedation, there could be increased risk for aerosol-generating medical procedures, bag mask ventilation, or intubation. And at some centers, including our own, the recommendation is that during sedation, the healthcare team wear increased levels of personal protective equipment. And so you wonder, during the pandemic, is there a way to treat these atrial fibrillation patients without putting everyone at risk for aerosol exposure and while preserving our precious PPE? And I think there is. Unfortunately, this method is supported by the guidelines, is evidence-based, and is advocated for by the cardiologists. And it really gives you two options. If you decide cardioversion is the way to go, then you can treat with IV procainamide. The most commonly studied dose in the emergency room is one gram given over an hour. You have to carefully watch their blood pressure and make sure that their QRS width doesn't increase by more than 50%. If that doesn't work, then rate control is the way to go. The suggested method for rate control is IV metoprolol, 2.5 to 10 milligrams which can be repeated again in five to 10 minutes for a maximum of 15 milligrams. Patients should also get an oral loading dose of 25 to 50 milligrams. Certainly, IV deltaizem is also an option. First dose is 0.25 milligrams per kilogram, and the second one is 0.15 milligrams per kilogram. However, our cardiologists caution against this, especially if the patient's LV function or ejection fraction are not well known. It's important to note that there's actually good evidence to show that the resting heart rate number is not that important. It's really most important is the patient is tolerating the symptoms well and they have a good discharge plan. We should also make sure that we evaluate the patient's needs for anticoagulation. If you do end up cardioverting these patients in the emergency room, they need at least four weeks of anticoagulation. In terms of her case, we tried giving this patient a gram of IV procainamide over an hour, which she tolerated well, but she didn't convert. So she ended up getting 10 milligrams of ibuprofen, as well as a 25 milligram oral dose. She was discharged home on appropriate anticoagulation, as well as metoprolol, and follow-up in her cardiology clinic. 
So to circumvent the issue of potential aerosolizing procedures with procedural sedation for electrical cardioversion of a fib, consider the next best option, which is probably procainamide. And if that doesn't work, try rate control with metoprolol in those with poor LV function or unknown LV function, or diltiazem, which actually has been shown to be a bit better than metoprolol for rate control in AFib patients in the ED. I personally use diltiazem for most patients. All right, next up, we continue with our cardiology theme with Swami on some procedural pearls when it comes to transvenous pacemaker placement. There are a lot of procedures in emergency medicine that we need to be facile with. There are some that we do every day, things like abscess drainage, maybe placement of sutures, and then there are some that are rarer, and these rarer procedures are the ones that we really do need to be the experts at. We need to think about them pretty frequently. And the one I want to talk about today is placement of a transvenous pacemaker wire. I think this is a bit of an intimidating topic, but I'll tell you, this is my favorite procedure to do, especially because it overwhelms other people. And I think with a simplified approach, this really isn't very daunting. I want to thank Ruben Strayer for giving me this particular approach. It's one that I now use in all of my patients who need a transvenous pacemaker. Let's start with who needs one. Well, the most common indication is going to be third degree heart block. You can also have the second degree type two heart block, but we also have to think about it in patients with acute myocardial infarction who have any advanced degree heart block. So whether that is second degree type one or type two or third degree, I'm going to think about placing a transvenous pacemaker in those patients with acute MI. One other thing to get out of the way is why not just use the transcutaneous pacemaker? Well, there's a couple of reasons why I find that they often fail to capture. When they do initially capture, they will fail over time. So you'll have to increase and increase your output and eventually they'll just stop capturing. And they're poorly tolerated by patients. You often have to end up adding sedatives or analgesic agents, not the best thing in an unstable patient. So let's get to that simplified approach and let's start with why. Why is it that we need a simplified approach to placing this? Well, I think that the standard approach is overly complicated and it discourages people from placing the transvenous pacemaker because we're just intimidated by what waveforms am I looking for? Where do I put the alligator clip? How do I get the ECG running at the same time? It takes too long to do it this way as well. We're looking for these different waveform progressions and that can take a lot of time and something we're not familiar with. I really don't find it comfortable to have to have Robertson Hedges open at the bedside while I'm doing the procedure doesn't install a lot of confidence in your team either. But I think for those of us who aren't doing transvenous pacemakers on a weekly or daily basis, you do need that reminder. So the standard approach is overly complicated. We've got to find a better way to do it. And that better way to do it is by watching the O2 saturation monitor instead of worrying about the ECG. Typically, when we look at that O2 sat monitor, we're just looking at the saturation that it's spitting out. What we don't realize is that it's also giving us a heart rate. So we're going to use that to place our wire. So let's start by placing the line. We're going to either place it in the right IJ or the left subclavian that gives us the easiest approach into the right side of the heart. You want to make sure that you're not using a standard intro like you use in trauma. Those are usually about eight French and they're too large for this procedure. You're going to get leaking around the wire. You want to look instead for a five and a half or a six French catheter. Typically, that's going to be bundled with your transvenous pacemaker line. But if it's not, make sure that you do check and have the right line going in. After you place your line, you're going to place that accordion plastic sheath. This is going to protect your wire so you can move it in and out. The next thing to do is to set your transvenous pacemaker box up. You're not going to turn it on at this point, but you're just going to put the settings in. 
We're going to put the heart rate to about 80. It's got to be at least 30 beats per minute faster than their native rate. So 80 is usually a good bet. Your output, you're going to turn that up all the way. Typically, that's around 25 milliamps. And then you're going to turn the sensitivity to the offsetting. So heart rate 80, output 25 milliamps or max, sensitivity is off. By putting the milliamps up to the maximum voltage, you make sure that while you're floating, if you have any difficulty capturing, you know that the difficulty capturing is because of location of the wire and not because your output isn't high enough. So now you only have to adjust one thing instead of trying to adjust both the location of the wire and the output at the same time. Now you're ready to actually float the wire. So we place the wire into the sleeve, into the catheter. We're going to advance it to 20 centimeters and then blow up the little balloon that's at the end of that thing. That's going to help us to float the wire. We're going to turn the box on at this point, and now we're going to advance the wire while watching the O2 sat monitor. As soon as that O2 sat monitor rate jumps from 30 or 40 beats per minute, whatever your bradycardia is, up to the 80 that you have set it at, you are done. That's it. You don't have to look for any waveforms. You don't have to look for a progression of different patterns, the injury pattern, etc. All you have to look for is that O2 sat monitor going from 30 or 40 beats per minute up to 80 beats per minute. And what you've done in that capturing is you've proven both electrical capture and more importantly, mechanical capture. The thing is that it is possible to get electrical capture without mechanical capture and mechanical capture is what we actually care about. Is the heart actually producing 80 contractions per minute and producing that cardiac output 80 times per minute? So as soon as you see that O2 sat monitor jump from a rate of 30 up to 80, you know you have mechanical capture. Now you can do other things to confirm that. You can look with ultrasound. You're going to check a blood pressure. But the most important thing is watching that O2 saturation tracing. And now you know that you're in a safe zone with that patient. At this point, you want to adjust the box. You're going to turn that output down as far as you can to the minimum voltage necessary to maintain capture. And then you also want to turn the sensitivity on at this point. At this point, your patient should be pretty stable. You can order that chest x-ray for confirmation of placement. You can call your consultant cardiologist to come in, take this patient for a permanent pacemaker if that's what's going to be necessary. The biggest pitfall in placement of transvenous pacemakers is deferring the procedure, is waiting for somebody to come in to do it, admitting the patient to the wards or even to the CCU without this pacemaker in place or relying on the transcutaneous pacemaker to be enough. Getting comfort with this alternate, simple strategy will allow us to place the pacemaker when it is necessary in our patients and not defer that procedure. There are some other great resources on this topic. Jess Mason has a great MRAP HD video that is free open access medical education. So you can check those out to pair the visual part of this procedure with what we've just talked about. Thanks so much, Swami. Great practical procedural pearls. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs during the COVID pandemic to set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. Metricade is giving EDs access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work of the building and managing of the schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. 
All right, next up, we have the brilliant brains behind EM Cases POCUS Cases video series, the one and only Dr. Rob Samard. He's going to review for us what we know about lung POCUS for COVID-19. Go for it, Samard. Not all patients with COVID-19 will have POCUS findings, usually only people with lung involvement, which will likely be the ones that have abnormal x-rays, will have findings on POCUS. Numerous B-lines are what we're seeing in COVID-19 patients. These are those long lines that start from the pleura and go vertically all the way down the screen. Normally, healthy people may have one or two of these B-lines in their entire lung field, but the positive finding is when patients have three or more in one interspace. This represents interstitial syndrome, which has a broad differential, which includes things like interstitial lung disease, interstitial pneumonia, pulmonary edema, and ARDS. The very interesting finding is that patients with COVID-19, the B lines are coming from very abnormal looking pleura. In pulmonary edema, from a cardiogenic cause, the B lines originate from a very smooth looking linear pleura. However, in COVID-19 patients, the B lines originate from a very irregular looking pleura termed the lumpy bumpy pleura. The lumpy bumpy pleura, which is actually a medical term you can Google, is not smooth at all. It has an irregular appearance, like if you were going over a road, you'd be feeling the bumps going over the road. So if you're focusing a patient who's short of breath, who you think might have COVID-19, if you do see B lines, look at that pleural line it's originating from. If it's smooth and regular, think cardiogenic causes to the shortness of breath. If it's bumpy and irregular, that's more in keeping with non-cardiogenic causes, such as what we're seeing in COVID-19 patients. Another thing to look for is consolidations beneath or far field to the pleura. These subpleural consolidations are seen in patients with infections. They look like little hyperechoic or darker looking areas just underneath the pleural line. You may also see larger consolidations in the lungs, and these may be bilaterally in the COVID-19 patients. Consolidations in the lung give the lung the appearance of the liver something called hepatization of the lungs. So if you see what looks like the liver where you should be seeing lung, think about consolidation and think about infection. The other finding that we are seeing is not actually a finding at all. It's the absence of a finding. We're really not seeing a lot of pleural effusions in COVID-19 patients. So if you're seeing B lines arising from a lumpy bumpy pleura and no pleural effusions, this is in keeping with what we're seeing in the COVID-19 patients and matches what we're seeing on their x-ray. Speaking of x-rays, I'd hate to say it, but an x-ray may be more helpful than POCUS in these patients. Doing a POCUS requires the machine and the patient to be intimately in contact with the patient who's suspected to have COVID-19. However, x-rays can be done from a distance and require minimal, if any, touching of the patient. And I'm also not really sure if seeing B-lines of normal pleura and consolidations in these POCUS patients are actually changing any management in a suspected COVID-19 patient. Some of these patients have abnormal vital signs and are working to breathe, which is going to warrant admission regardless of what their ultrasound shows. 
And some of these patients have the exact same findings on ultrasound, but are walking around with completely normal vitals, have normal saturation on room air, and look exceedingly well, and are likely to be safely dischargeable home with good return instructions. My personal feelings is that POCUS is providing us with another data point in these COVID-19 patients. This extra data point will help you if you're on the fence clinically about whether admission or discharge is warranted. It may sway your decision if you're on the fence, but this is the vast minority of the patients that I'm seeing. The vast majority, the discharge is quite obvious. So in summary, in the COVID-19 patients with lung involvement, we are typically seeing B-lines arising from a lumpy, bumpy pleura and the absence of pleural fluid. Also, you might be seeing subpleural consolidation or hepatization of the lung bilaterally in some of the cases. Please make sure you are cleaning your machine to a local or national standard to prevent them from becoming vectors of the virus. And I want to thank all of you out there who work on the front line who see patients. You're inspiring me and motivating me to go out there every day and do my part in these uncertain times. Be safe out there. Continuing with our COVID theme, we've got the best of EM docs with Michael Gottlieb and Britt Long telling us a bit about the dermatologic findings in COVID-19 patients. This time, we're going to talk about something a little different with regard to COVID. While much of the focus has been on the cardiac, pulmonary, and hematologic complications, there has only recently been a recognition of the skin findings. The initial reports suggested that skin findings were only present in less than 1% of patients. However, a recent study found that rashes were seen in over 20% of cases. Now, this has been gathering increased recognition in the news, so it's important for us to be aware of it. What's the thought process behind these rashes? A lot of this comes back to the angiotensin converting enzyme 2. Prior to COVID, no one really talked much about this important enzyme. Now, everyone knows about it. We know that ACE2 is mostly concentrated in the lung, GI tract, heart, and blood vessels, but it's also found in the skin, which may explain why we're seeing these findings. Now back to the receptors, once the virus binds, the current thought is that there are two causes for rashes. First, a hyperreactive immune response can result in rash. Second, there might be a direct viral effect similar to rashes seen with other viral illnesses. Regardless of the exact cause, one thing is clear. This rash is not your typical viral rash. Absolutely, and some case reports have found that the rash begins prior to symptoms, suggesting that this may be an early warning system for COVID, while others have suggested it's more common concurrent with or after symptoms. But I think the key is to be aware of it, as it may help trigger you to think about COVID. Now, speaking of rashes, let's start with my favorite term when I don't know how to describe a rash, maculopapular. Not surprisingly, this is the most common rash described in the literature, though I do appreciate hearing dermatologists use the term as well. As a reminder, macules are small, flat areas of discoloration, while papules are small, raised elevations. And these are often red or purple-colored and can have scaling. In fact, some have said this rash can resemble pityriasis rosea, the classic pine tree rash. Studies have described this in a number of locations, ranging from the head to the feet. But most commonly, it's described as diffuse. And while it can be difficult to differentiate this from other viral rashes, it should make you think twice about COVID. 
Urticaria is another common rash that has been recognized in patients with COVID. Case reports have described this in a variety of locations of the body, though most studies have noted sparing of the palms and soles. This typically has a shorter duration than the other rashes, typically around six to seven days. Interestingly, urticaria is associated with more severe disease. Vesicular rashes are a bit less common, but have been described in up to 1% of patients. These will look similar to vesicles in chickenpox or disseminated zoster, but are a bit more scattered and discreet, so they're often not quite as impressive and widespread as varicella or herpes-type infections. Interestingly, these are also less paritic than chickenpox, with one study noting that one-third of cases had no itching at all. One case series noted that there may also be hemorrhagic content. So if you see a vesicular rash, particularly if it's more scattered and not as paritic, think about COVID. Petechiae and purpura are more rare. Right now, there are only two case reports in the literature. As a reminder, petechiae are pinpoint skin bruising, while purpura are the larger version. There are a number of reasons these may appear, but the presumptive cause in these cases is either low platelets or vasculitis. One rather famous case report describes a patient who presented with multiple petechiae and was initially misdiagnosed as dengue fever. Another described a patient with large areas of purpura in the flexural areas. In general, thrombocytopenia is a less common complication of COVID, but we should still consider this in patients, especially when they have other potential COVID symptoms. Chilblains is one of the most famous rashes, and several researchers have noticed a significant increase in the number of cases in the past few months. Now, at this time, there are already over 100 cases described in the literature. Chilblains, which is also known as pernio, is an abnormal response to cold where the distal vessels constrict and the skin becomes red, swollen, or even develops blisters and ulcers. The pathophysiology in this case shares some overlap with Raynaud's phenomenon, but it's more specifically related to the virus. The hands and feet are more commonly affected, and it's usually asymmetric. Only about a third of cases are painful, and one-third of cases have pruritus. Now, compared with other rashes, this tends to occur much more commonly in younger patients and generally occurs later in the disease process. While this is often a transient process and resolves after the infection clears, this can be very concerning for patients, so it's important that we're aware of this. One of the more interesting findings is Levito racemosa. So I'll be honest, I had to look this one up the first time I heard about it. This is a web-like pattern of deep purple skin changes that can be diffuse and profound. This is much more common in older patients with a mean age of 63 years in one large study. This rash is associated with a much higher mortality rate, over 10% in one study. And a lot of these skin findings are fairly benign on their own. However, the last one we're going to talk about is the most dreaded one, distal ischemia. Now, one of the increasingly recognized complications of COVID is the development of these microthrombi. While this is frequently thought about with regard to the lungs, this can also cause distal ischemia and necrosis. Studies have suggested that this often begins as small, red, or purple papules on the distal fingers and toes. Then it becomes increasingly painful, and eventually patients develop edema, bullae, and skin necrosis. Therefore, it's important to consider this potential complication in COVID-19 and consider anticoagulation or thrombolytics in discussion with your vascular surgeon early in the course. So this was a lot of information. Britt, can you summarize the key points for us? First, recognize that rash has been found in patients with COVID. 
patients can present with a wide array of rashes, including maculopapular, urticaria, vesicular, petechiae, and purpura, chilblains, levito racemosa, and distal ischemia. Most are benign and should mainly just trigger consideration of COVID, but be on the lookout for early signs of distal ischemia. Hi, my name is Paul Koblitz. I'm a Toronto-based emergency medicine physician, and I'm the simulation program lead uh, for the CCFPEM SIM program at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, in March, when the pandemic erupted or was declared, um, it put our entire program on hold because all of a sudden nobody was allowed to meet in person for medical education. The last third of our year was going to be sacrificed, but fortunately our program was saved by who I'm here to introduce, Dr. Sarah Fui. So Dr. Fui, we had uh, talked initially in March or earlier this year about how we were going to try and do something called Zoom Sim, um, but I was really worried that it was just going to be another oral exam over the computer. Maybe you can talk uh, and, and tell the audience a little bit what you had planned and what you thought about how are you going to make the Zoom Sim Yes, it's been a very challenging time. So I think all of us educators and learners have come to realize the limitations of learning virtually using teleconference. It seems like most programs have adopted the idea of replacing SIM with the um, opportunity to just discuss cases. So the facilitator kind of says this is the prompt and then guides the learners through the discussion, like an oral exam, as you mentioned. And that's an excellent approach for medical content. But my concern was that this misses the things about simulation that makes it such an important learning opportunity. You know, it misses the chance to practice crisis resource management skills. It misses the kind of performance anxiety, hands-on element that I really think helps SIM consolidate learning. So the goal was when we were brainstorming how we could best solve this to create some kind of model that meant we could emulate the sim lab environment a little bit more closely and actively work to make a setting in which we have to practice crisis resource management skills. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think we were all really concerned that we were just going to be talking through cases for the rest of the year. Um, and simulation is always so popular with the residents. And I think that we really wanted to simulate the sim lab as best as we could. So why don't you tell us about the plan? What, what did you come up with? So the idea is the virtual recess room is what we've named it. Um, there's two main components. The first, obviously, is audio. So the audio is used just like in the sim lab. So the facilitators and the learners can talk through the case and use their closed communication skills. The visual is the new element. So the virtual recess room is a shared Google Slides document that everyone can have open and edit and interact with at the same time. And it's designed to look like a recess room as much as possible. So the first page has the patient room where there's a patient silhouette and the patient is surrounded by monitors, basic equipment, the head of the bed airway supplies and a patient chart. Subsequent pages have a tray for medications and for airway equipment. And then beyond that is a series of hidden slides. And in these slides, facilitators can reveal things like physical exam findings and investigations, models for procedures, et cetera, as the case unfolds. And this kind of set of hidden slides is really where the creativity lies when designing these sims. So facilitators can integrate multimedia. For example, we integrated a video of a child with Kuzmal breathing for our case of pediatric DKA. It can include the typical investigations like labs and chest x-rays and ECGs, but it can also include more advanced things like a um, model to emulate a procedure. So for one of our cases, we had a slide designed to talk through the steps of a crike where there was a photograph of a patient's neck 
and movable landmarking lines that the patients had to click and drag over the position on the patient's neck where they would make their two incisions to really force them to commit as they were verbally talking through the steps of this procedure. I think probably it's hard to describe kind of what is really a visual thing. So in the show notes, we'll have a link to the website where there's both pictures and video demonstrating kind of what has been developed. What's the name of your website? The website is virtualrecessroom.com. Coming up, we have some pretty interesting and exciting cases. We're hoping to simulate the perimortem hysterotomy and NRP in our last session. So that will be really exciting because we can develop some kind of model similar to the crike where we have to emulate the landmarking involved with the procedure of the hysterotomy. And for NRP, I'm working on developing a new kind of recess room that has the warmer and the dials that are recorded for managing a critically ill newborn. Sensational. I love it. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about, again, making this not just an oral exam. What do you think it is about these Google slides that make them, you know, high fidelity? What is it that makes this more simulation than oral exam? So I think probably the most important part is that it really is interactive. So the learner who's responsible to do the monitors has to select the monitor and click and drag it onto the patient. The learner who's responsible for the airway needs to choose what method of oxygen delivery they want and select what the oxygen flow rate is. If they're moving on to more advanced airway procedure like intubation, when they go to the airway tray, they have to actually select what size they want of all their equipment. So they have to commit and interact with the interface as part of the process. And I remember you were sharing your screen and you actually had some PowerPoint slides which were helping with the debrief as well. Yeah, that's the one other advantage of doing a virtual sim is that because you can share your screen, we could use the real up-to-date guidelines and flowcharts after the residents had raised a point to kind of further consolidate it for the visual learners. For sure, for sure. So where do you see this going next? What are your, what are your goals going forward? So currently, as I mentioned previously, I'm working on developing more cases, some pretty complex ones for the senior eMERGE fellows, and then some more kind of core emergency medicine topics for the medical students. But most importantly, I want to share this project with interested educators. I'd love to hear the thoughts and feedback of other people involved with simulation to various levels of learners so we can work together to make this project better and more accessible. So all sim-interested folks, please head on over to virtualrecessroom.com and or reach out to Dr. Fui on Twitter, at Sarah Fui, that's spelled S-A-R-A-H-F-O-O-H-E-Y. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits. Hope you learned a little bit about imaging in renal colic patients, recognition and management of human trafficking, management of AFib in the COVID era, lung pocus for COVID patients, the derm manifestations of COVID, and the latest and greatest on virtual simulation. Until next time, stay safe and take it easy.